Hey, hey, good morning. You guys doing okay? All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Um, if, you, if you are new here and you don't know who I am, my name is Andrew and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And if you're here and you've been hurt by the church or you would consider yourself someone that is not a follower of Jesus, you have some real strong objections to Christianity, man, this is a safe place and we'd love to process those with you. So uh, don't feel out of place here. Just we all have questions, and we're here committed to walk in with you as you process those claims. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah 4. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. I'll have mine, and we have the words up on the screen as well. Uh, I want to say just a couple things before we jump in. Man, I, I'm so thankful for what the Lord is doing uh, in and among the church. And a lot of times there's stories that are happening throughout the week or happening on Sundays that we don't get to tell you. So I just want to say last week, we got to baptize a handful of people. And I just want to celebrate that, that God is saving and he's moving. Yeah, you can clap. Um, all but one were planned. One of them was spontaneous. She responded to the gospel uh, in that sermon, and it was just really fun to, to see what God is doing. We're seeing more and more prophetic words as a community. If, you, if you're not sure what that is, God speaks authoritatively through his word all the time, uh, but he also speaks to people for other people, and that needs to be tested with the Bible, and we need to make sure that it lines up, and if it doesn't, then we toss it. Uh, but that's a really edifying and encouraging way that God, and his, through his spirit, moves in our church. And we've seen some physical healings lately, just some really cool physical healings happen. And the level of generosity, uh, just the stories of what are, what, what are happening, sometimes needs don't even get to me before those needs are met. And I, I realize we have some ways to grow as a church in this, but it's just amazing to watch the, the generosity level of our church rise. So really thankful for all that God is doing and excited for the future. Uh, a couple things. In two weeks, I'm going to do a sermon on kind of our vision as a church. Why, why do we exist? What are we about? What, what do we hope to see happen in the next uh, season of the, chur- the church here, the life of our church? What do we, what do we hope and pray God is, is doing and inviting us into? That'll be in two weeks. And then after that, we're going to start a new sermon series called A Sacred Life. And A Sacred Life is basically like basic discipleship probably in a way that you've never heard. And I think it'll be helpful whether you've been following Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years or you, you aren't even a Christian yet. I think this is going to give you a vision of what Jesus is inviting you into in the mundane aspects of your life. So uh, join us for that. All right, enough of that. Jonah chapter 4. Here's the, the crazy thing about this book. We've been on a journey through this book, the book of Jonah, and in many ways this has been a rescue journey. We're trying to rescue the book of Jonah from being a silly, trite, fairy tale kid story about a man that got swallowed by a a whale. That's that's really not what this story is about. This story is not really primarily written for kids, although a kid could maybe grasp elements of the story. This story is one of the most complex, beautifully written pieces of literature that we've ever, ever read, uh, not just in the Bible, but elsewhere in ancient history. This is an incredibly well put together book. It's nuanced. It's inspired satire meant to kind of blow up the flaws of some of the characters in the book, primarily meant to point the finger back at us and show us where we fail and and our own flaws as individuals. It's just an incredible book. And I I need to say from the get-go that Jonah is not the hero of the story. In fact, Jonah is the anti-hero of the story. He's the ironic guy who is a prophet that is honestly the worst person in the whole story. Let, Let me give you a couple things. Number one, Jonah's the only character that doesn't ever obey God. 
He's the only character in the book. In chapter 1, the great storm obeys God. In chapter 2, the great fish obeys God. In chapter 3, the great city of Nineveh obeys God. And in chapter 4, you've got a plant and you've got a worm and a scorching east wind as character, characters in this story. And all three of them obey God. The only one who doesn't is Jonah. It's bizarre. The other thing about Jonah that you need to realize is that Jonah is the only character who doesn't repent in the story. The only one. Uh, and, and early in the book, in chapter 1, the pagan sailors repent. Uh, then we have the story of the pagan people of Nineveh, the, the worst people uh, really on the planet in this day in history. They repent. Uh, e- even the cattle, which is bizarre, even the cattle repent in the story. So the cattle are crying out in repentance Jonah doesn't repent. And just to show you the ridiculous nature of this, it even uses this weird Hebrew word that could be translated repentance to talk about God repenting of the disaster that he was going to bring on Jonah. Not that God has sin to repent of, but just showing even God changed his his direction in the story. Jonah's the only one that doesn't change his direction in the whole story. What a bizarre prophet. In fact, if you kind of just put out all the prophets in the Bible, every single prophet mentioned, Jonah is by far and away the worst prophet in the Bible. He's just the worst one. He's the worst guy, and he's meant to just kind of blow up as a character flaw, not just so that we can all go, ha ha, look how funny he is, look how dumb he is, but so that as we start laughing at him, it's a, it's a punch to the gut, and we realize, oh, I'm just like him. The way Jonah is, is the way I am. He is me. That's the whole point of this story. And at the very end, we're going to wrap up the book today, finish the series out. At the very end in chapter 4, God is going to ask Jonah a question that is really, honestly, just an incredible question. And he's turning to you and he's turning to me asking us the same question. And I think that your answer is going to tell you what truly is in your heart today and what truly is in the heart of God. And you might be shocked at how different those two things are. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let, let's pick it, up, pick it up in chapter 3 at the very end. I want you to, to see what happened in the story. You remember Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, finally, begrudgingly, doesn't want to go, but he finally makes it to the city. And he's supposed to preach to them against their evil. Um, he doesn't talk about their evil. He doesn't even mention God in a sermon. It's a five-word sermon in Hebrew. He doesn't even go all the way into the city, so he's really half-heartedly doing this. He's like, oh, I don't really want to do this. But, you know, here's the essence of his sermon. You're all going to die in 40 days. That's it. You're all going to die in 40 days. And the response to that sermon is breathtaking. The entire city of Nineveh responds and repentance to the worst sermon that was ever preached. So look at what happened, Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented of the disaster. He was going this way, and they repented, and he decided not to pour out his judgment on the city. This is bizarre. Like if, if you were Jonah and the story ended here, it should end with, and they all lived happily ever after. Like this is a roaring success of a mission. Jonah preaches a five-word sermon, maybe the most powerful preacher ever because the entire city turns to God in repentance. Even the king 
of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Even the king of Assyria, the most powerful empire on the planet, he steps off of his throne. He removes his robe. He humbles himself in sackcloth and ashes, which is an ancient tradition of humbling yourself in repentance. And he cries out to God for mercy. Like you kind of expect Jonah to pick up the phone and be like, hey, prophet fellas, you would not believe what just happened. I killed it out there. Five-word sermon, the whole city's done. Mission accomplished. Amazing. Like he should go home, head held high. This mission was a roaring success. But instead, you read something very, very different in chapter four. Look at chapter four, verse one, Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. You kind of expect the story to be over. The whole city repents and yay, everyone's happy. Not Jonah. Jonah's exceedingly angry. In fact, in the Hebrew, it literally says that what the Lord did was an exceedingly great evil in his sight. Jonah is not happy. Jonah's intensely mad. That's the first thing I want you to see. Let's take a look at Jonah's intense anger and try to understand it for just a minute. Why is he mad? Why is, he, why is he intensely angry with what happened to the Ninevites? Well, um, there are at least two reasons, probably more, but just two that we can quickly grab a hold of. The first reason that Jonah's really upset is because Jonah despised the Ninevites. He despised the Ninevites. Now, now this is difficult for you and I to understand because we don't know much about the ancient city of Nineveh. We don't know much about the Assyrian Empire. Maybe some of you are history buffs in the room, so you've read a little bit. But a lot of us don't know much about the Assyrian Empire, and so it's difficult to understand what was so horrifically bad about them that would stir up so much hatred in Jonah's heart. And specifically, Jonah's, he, he dislikes these people, and that's like putting it in a mild way. He, he really despises these people because as a Jewish person, he's been on the receiving end of their violence. As a Jewish prophet, he's been on the receiving end of all the, the, the horrifically brutal, violent things that the Assyrian Empire has done. He just doesn't like these people, and it's not hard to see why. The, the ancient city of Nineveh, Nineveh was actually uncovered in the 19th century. Uh, they, they discovered it by a guy named Sir Austin Layard. He was doing some, some exploratory of stuff on the other side of Mosul, Iraq, and they ended up uncovering the city of Nineveh. And when they found the palace, they, they were able to uncover what was inside of the palace walls. And there are all these reliefs, these palace reliefs on the walls. If you don't know what a relief is, it's like a, a giant piece of art that would hang on the walls. And this art would tell the story of the Ninevites, specifically the Assyrian Empire, the, the exploits, the military tactics, the, the various uh, victories that they had had as the Ninevites. And, and so the idea was this. If you were a friend and you showed up from another country to make a treaty or make a deal with the Assyrian Empire, you would see these palace reliefs and you would be overwhelmed at the violence of the empire. And it would, it would instill fear in your heart. And you would go, I better, not, I better not screw these guys over because they are dangerous people. If you're an enemy or uh, maybe a, a captured victim by the Assyrian army, you would be brought to the palace and you would look at these palace walls and all the reliefs would tell the story of what they are about to do to you. I mean, it was meant to instill fear in the hearts of people just describing their brutality. So let me just show you some of these, these reliefs that they found to give you an idea of what these people were like. Here's one that was found. Um, this is a picture of them impaling people alive. They would take giant sharp stakes and they would siege a city, they'd surround a city, 
to, to overtake it. And after several weeks or even months of sieging the city where the people are stuck, they would occasionally be able to capture certain people alive in the city and they would stick them on these spikes, these, these spikes just stick them on there um, and they would, they would die that way. And then they would take those people and they would post it all around the city so that you were inside of the city. You would look out and all you would see is your mom or your daughter or your friend or your brother hanging on one of those spikes. Eventually they'd fill the city just surrounding with bodies. Terrifying, horrifically evil. Here's another relief that was found. This is of them beheading people. What they would do is they would capture a nation. They'd come in and they'd, be, they'd behead the certain political leaders or the kings. And then they would take other political leaders that they didn't behead and they would take those heads and turn it into a necklace. And they would force these these political leaders of the captured nation to wear the heads of their leaders as a necklace and they'd kind of just parade them through the town to humiliate them, showing you this is how powerful we are. Your leaders, yeah, his head is now a necklace. Here's, here's another relief that they found. This is uh, of them flaying people alive. Flaying people is where you basically peel the skin off of them while they're still alive. And they would do this, and, and, and on and on. There's other reliefs. They found some I don't have pictures of, of, of hooks, giant hooks that they would hook in, inside of their captives' noses or lips, and they would pull them as prisoners with those hooks. I mean, the, the city of Nineveh and the, the Assyrian Empire, they were horrifically, horrifically violent, evil, brutal stuff. That, I mean, just it's hard for us to quite grasp, but nobody like the Assyrians, especially the people of Israel, if you were not one of them, you hated these people. So Jonah, he's mad, not because his mission to Nineveh was uh, a failure. Jonah's mad because his mission to Nineveh was a roaring success, and that was the problem. He didn't want them to be forgiven. He didn't want God to have compassion on them. He didn't want that. He wanted Nineveh to be wiped off the planet. So he's mad because he just despises despises the Ninevites and everything that they stood for. Here's the second reason why Jonah's intensely angry, and this is, this is a little bit more beneath the surface. This is a little bit more heart-related that we uncover in chapter 4. Um, Jonah's mad not just because he hates the Ninevites and he despises them as a people. Jonah's mad, he's angry, because if he's honest with himself, he actually despises parts of who God is. God's character. It's not just them, it's God that he's struggling with. Look at this in chapter 4, verse 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why did I run? For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah, it's not just that he hates the Ninevites. Jonah despises parts of the character of God. He says, this is why I ran. I I knew it. I knew that you would have grace. I knew that you would forgive him. You've always been like that. You've always been so kind. You've always been so merciful. I knew it. That's why I ran. I I didn't want you to forgive them. They don't deserve it. And I'm I'm actually angry at you. You should not have done this. It was a great evil that you did this. You forgave them. Now, here's the irony. 
of this. That, that passage that Jonah, he's actually quoting the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and he won't always chide. It's, it's quoted all over the Old Testament over and over and over again and here's why. Over and over and over again, the people of Israel, they, they sin in horrific ways and God, he's like, all right, I, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm, you're, 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 I'm gonna wipe you out now and then again, he's reminded, no, I can't though because I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love. So here's the irony here. The only reason why Jonah still exists as the chosen people of God is because God is this way. And Jonah's throwing it back in his face saying, you've always been like that. You've always been so kind. And that's literally why he's even existing as the people of God. Here's the other part of this that's really ironic is this is actually the second time in the whole story that Jonah's prayed. Do you remember the first time Jonah prayed? What was happening when Jonah prayed in chapter two? Here's what was happening. He was sinking to the bottom of the ocean. He was sinking and the, he doesn't say a word to God in the whole story, but right, right as he's about to die, like his life is being snuffed out, right as he's about to drown to death, he cries out to God from the ocean, God, help! God, deliver me! Rescue me! Come to my aid! And God, in his great mercy, he comes and he saves and rescues Jonah. He responds to Jonah's prayer. What's crazy about it is Jonah isn't repenting. He's not saying, God, I'm so sorry, I rebelled. I'll never do it again. I, please forgive me. How could you have mercy? No, he just says, help me. Save my skin. What was happening in chapter three? Jonah chapter two, he's sinking. He cries out to God for help. Jonah chapter three, the Ninevites, they're sinking in their evil and brutality and, and wickedness. And, and they hear about God and they, they cry out to God for deliverance and they truly repent. They actually humble themselves and they turn to God. God, would you have mercy on me? God, would you have grace on our country? God, would you have, even the king of Nineveh repents and God responds to them with grace and just freaks Jonah out, makes him so intensely angry, so much so that he even says, it's better for me to die than to live. What's happening in the story? Here's what's happening. Jonah loves the grace of God when it's for him but he despises grace when it's for people that he feels like really don't deserve it. He loves forgiveness when it's for him, but don't you forgive those people. They, they, they've done, don't, don't have grace on them. They're outside of the bounds of your mercy. I love it when it's for me, but don't extend that same love and compassion and grace to my enemies. See, Jonah's doing what you and I all do. We want to point the finger and laugh at this guy. Like, he literally just prayed for God to kill him. Like, God, I'm so mad, just kill me. He, he, we want to kind of laugh at his irrationality and all the craziness that's happening here. But the whole point of the story is that Jonah's a mirror meant for us to look into and actually realize that, that we are like this. You and I love the grace of God. We love compassion. We love forgiveness. We love his mercy and his love for us. But we struggle, man. We struggle to actually extend that to various people in our lives, don't we? Let me give you an example of how this plays out in our lives. Uh, have you ever been driving down the highway and you're in the fast lane and you're not necessarily speeding? I mean, maybe you're going five over, but does that really count, you know? Um, all right, so it does count, but, but, but you're, 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 you're driving at a good pace. You're driving down the highway and the, the flow of traffic's moving at a good pace. 
And then all of a sudden there's that maniac driver that's going like 20 miles above the flow of traffic and he gets on your tail and he rides your bumper. Do you know what I'm talking about when this happens? He, it's always a guy. I don't know why. It's always a, a, a guy and he's like in a terrible car and he's like flying down the highway and he's on your tail and, and you do, we, we do what any, any logical good person would do. Um, we find the slowest car in the lane next to us and we match our car with that car, Right? Don't act like you don't do this. And then we slow down together because we're in it together. So we slow down together and enjoy what commences after that. Just enjoy the look on his face, the yelling, the, the hysteria. We just love it. And, and we do that for as long as we can. And then at some point, you're like, man, he's, he's actually going to hit me. He's actually, it's like bumper cars out there. So, so, then, so then finally you zoom up a little bit. You get to the next lane. And when that car goes past you, you glare at them, Right? And you give them the nastiest look that you can in the moment. Hopefully nothing else. And then if you're like me, you pray for them. You pray for them. But not a good prayer. Don't get me wrong. Not a good prayer. You actually pray like an imprecatory bad prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, let there please be a police officer just right up ahead. Because this person deserves a ticket. They're crazy. This is how people get hurt. Pull them over, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Either I'm the worst person in the room or we all do this, right? In 2017, I was preaching our frontline youth camp and I was in about an hour outside of Houston. My wife was seven months pregnant with uh, Bear, our third, third baby, a little boy. And um, she had had health issues. She had had some problems. Every pregnancy that she's had has been complicated in some form or fashion. And uh, I was a few minutes away from having to get up to preach for our frontline youth camp, just a few minutes away. And her blood pressure had been like spiked all day and it got like ridiculously high. And the nurse, the nurse said, you've, you've got you've to go to the hospital. Houston's about a downtown... Houston Hospital is about an hour away. You've got to get there and get there fast. I mean, she, like the look in the nurse's eye made me nervous for my baby, made me nervous for my wife. And so I got in the car and I flew down the highway. I didn't care how fast I was going, how many laws I was breaking. I was like, man, if I get pulled over, I'll, that more the better. I'll just have an escort to get to the hospital. So I am flying, probably going 90 miles an hour down the highway in downtown Houston. And I pull up on this car that wasn't going slow by any means, but just not f- as fast as I needed to, to be getting to the hospital. And that car did what I just described. Matched up with a car. They slowed down together. And they enjoyed it for just a little bit. And then this went on for several minutes and I was getting agitated, I was getting frustrated, I was getting almost to the place of despair and finally that car zoomed up and moved and and I drove past that car and they gave me the nastiest dirty look. Flipped me the bird. They were saying something. I couldn't make out what it was but it didn't seem nice, you know. And, And all I wanted to do in that moment was just be like, man, you don't know my story. Like, you don't know what's in, what's in this car right now. You don't know what's happening. If you knew, you'd have some grace on me. If you, were, if you were me right now, you would be different. You would have some compassion. Man, we are just like that. Man, if you knew my story, you would know. I, I need grace. I need love. I need forgiveness. If you, if you knew the stuff I've been through, if, you, if you've been where I've been, you, you, would, you would have some grace. You would be different. But then we don't extend that exact same grace to other people. We treat them as if we have no idea what it's like to be broken, to be addicted, to be just filled with twisted desires and disorders in our heart, to be in a place of brokenness. We don't know what it's like. That's what's happening 
in the story. Jonah got rescued from the bottom of the ocean in chapter 2, and he's absolutely irate at the grace and mercy of God in chapter 3. Which is it? Do you want grace or do you not want grace? You want it for you, but you don't want it, if we're honest, for certain people in your life. So how would God respond? How does he respond? I kind of expect God to be like, you know what, Jonah? We're done with this. Poof, and he just disappears. He like dies, you know? Like, you're done. You're the worst prophet out of all the prophets, and you've just been a big baby. You just prayed the second time, and your prayer included, would you please kill me, which is the opposite of what you prayed in chapter two. I'm done with you. You religious hypocrite, I'm done with you. But look at how God responds to Jonah. This is the second thing I want you to see is his patient pursuit. Jonah chapter 4 verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? God is not raising his voice at Jonah. He's not yelling at him. He's not rebuking him. He's not coming to him just filled with anger and be like, he doesn't do that. He just comes to Jonah as a gentle father He stoops down to his level and he says, do you do well to be angry? You see, what's happening here is God's patient pursuit of all types of sinful people, even sinful people like Jonah. You see, he's going to have mercy on the blatantly evil like Nineveh, but he's he's having mercy on Jonah in this moment. He's not not harassing or, or, or rebuking. He's just coming to him and saying, you're angry, Jonah. Let's talk about that. Process your anger with me. Let's dialogue about your anger. How's that working for you? Well, do you do well to be angry? God is so patient with even the religious hypocrites that want grace for themselves but don't want grace for other people. That's amazing. Now notice what happens next. Do you do well to be angry? What's Jonah's response? Chapter four, verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. So God asked him a question. He just, I'm I'm not even gonna engage that and leaves and walks out of the city, goes to the east of the city and makes himself a booth. What's he up to? He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. What's Jonah doing right now? He leaves the city, he goes outside of the city, and he's like, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe it'll be Sodom and Gomorrah part two. You never know. I'm just gonna sit here and wait. I'm gonna build myself a little shelter. I'm just gonna wait and hope for the best. Please, oh, please change your mind. Maybe Nineveh will get destroyed after all. God had just asked him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm not gonna engage that. He's like a teenager that you, you know, just kind of storms off to his room and goes and pouts. That's what Jonah's doing in the story. He's pouting and waiting for the city to go up in flames. Now look at verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. This is so bizarre. And he made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. Look at this. To save him from his discomfort. More grace and more mercy from God. Jonah's out there baking in the hot sun and God's like, man, let me help you with that. I'm gonna grow up a plant and I'm gonna shade you. He's even being nice to Jonah while Jonah's waiting for this entire city to go up in flames. That's how merciful and gracious and slow to anger he is. And look at this last line. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. That's the very first time in the entire story that Jonah has been said to be happy. And he's happy, why? Because of a plant? 
Now, some of you, like millennials, I, I got to say this. It wasn't a marijuana plant, all right? Don't read into it. You're like, he's happy. He's out there token away. That's why he's happy. No, no, no. That's not what the, you know, don't read into the story. He's actually being shaded by this plant. He's out there, and he's saying, oh, man, that's so nice. I'm going to sit here and enjoy this plant that's shading me so I can keep watching the city waiting for God to destroy it. He's actually happy. And ironically, the Lord is coming to him with unbelievable compassion. Now look at what happens next. This is hilarious. Um, Verse seven. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. I looked it up in the Hebrew. Uh, scorching east wind in Hebrew literally means July in Oklahoma. It was so weird. I was so shocked. It's like, man, that's, I didn't expect to see that. Scorching east wind. It's beating down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Look at this. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. How many times has, has Jonah asked to die so far? We're up to two two in one chapter. That's pretty good. Okay. Um, But God said to Jonah, not a word of rebuke, not a word of anger, not a word of just he's so frustrated. God gently as a father says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He just asked the same question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah's response, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What? Over a plant? Jonah's just freaking out like a toddler about a plant. Now, here's, if you don't have a toddler, and if you've never seen a toddler, uh, then this will be hard for you to imagine. But just imagine having a toddler, and imagine being at the grocery store. And they actually intentionally design the checkout aisles to just freak parents out of their minds. Uh, so you've, you've already had a stressful environment at the grocery store trying to get your groceries and you finally make it to the checkout. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel and then all of a sudden you, there's candy on both sides, right? And if you have kids, they're just like, freaking out, grabbing it all, stuff, stuff in their pockets, you know, down their shirt. That's what my kids literally do every time we're at the grocery store. So, so imagine a toddler grabs the candy, he's happy, he's got candy. And then the parent reaches down and pries it out of his grubby little hands And the toddler just, ah, angry enough to die. That's Jonah in chapter four. The plant, I love the plant. This plant's great. It's shaded. I can watch the city and just pray that God changes his mind and kills everybody there. What? The plant's destroyed? Oh, I'm devastated. I'm so mad I could die. Guys, three times in one chapter, Jonah has prayed to God for God to kill him. He's suicidal. He's so angry. He can't see straight. He's out there not just fuming, burning up on, his, on the heat, but he's burning up in his own anger. And here's how the story ends. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. (laughs) I love that that's in there. He's like, should I not pity all these people? Oh, and bro, there's a lot of animals too, right? Pity 
Should I not pity them? The Hebrew word for pity means to have tears in your eyes. It literally means to weep or to sob. Jonah is weeping and sobbing over the plant. Meanwhile, God is busy weeping and sobbing over the city. Jonah's emotionally attached to something that didn't exist 24 hours before and emotionally detached and disconnected from immortal human beings made in the image of God that bring tears to the eyes of God, not just because of their evil, but because of the compassion that he has in his heart for them. They are lost. That's literally what it means to not know the difference between your right hand and your left. Not that you don't literally know the difference, but it's describing someone that's lost. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible describes people that are far from God in that type of way, that they're lost. It's not just, God's not like, yeah, you're, you're sinful, you're evil, you're, ah, I don't even want you. No, you're lost. You don't know where home is. You've forgotten where you're at and you're confused and I'm the good father that's coming after you to pursue you. And and Jonah, you're weeping over a plant while I'm weeping over people. This is painful to read. Why does the story end like this? We don't know what Jonah says to the question that God poses. We don't know the response it feels abrupt. It feels like it just ended out of nowhere. If we didn't know better, we would honestly think that we are missing a section of the manuscript. Part of it got lost in history. What happened? Like, what, where's the rest of the story? Why does Jonah end like this? Here's why. Because Jonah is a minor prophet. He's in the minor prophets groups. And here's the idea behind that. God speaks to prophets, and they take what God says, and they go communicate that very word to the people. And it's usually meant to convict them or to point out their sin and their their flaws. Jonah's the most bizarre, different minor prophet in this way because God speaks to Jonah, but Jonah's not speaking to us and saying, here's what God says. Jonah is speaking to us, not with his words, but with his lifestyle. And God is actually in turn speaking to his people, both then and today, through this broken man. You see, Jonah, here's what he's doing. He's, he, he's living in rebellion. He's running from God. He's living in hard-heartedness. He has ethnic pride that keeps him from, from seeing the value and the dignity of other human beings made in the image of God. He has this inability to love his enemies, even though he at one time was an enemy of God. And he has this inability to step in, and he wants grace for him, but no compassion or grace for those people. Jonah is speaking to us because Jonah is us. He is us. And the message is a mirror God is holding up saying, do you see how broken you are? Do you see the things that you love? Do you see the ways that you refuse to love certain people, certain groups? This is the story of Jonah, it's meant to convict, it's meant to correct, it's meant to pierce us in our gut. So about the time we're laughing at Jonah, we get punched in the gut with, oh, that's what I'm like. I love grace for me. I don't love it for other people. I love compassion for me, but man, there are certain people that just don't deserve it. They just don't deserve compassion. So I wanna, I wanna wrap it up and end it like this. We are Jonah, and let me just give you two ways that I think this is true of us. Number one, there are just certain people that we struggle to love and to forgive. Is there not? 
There are just certain people that we struggle to love and to forgive. This is kind of, if we're honest, our dirty little secret as Christians, that we have hatred and dislike in our hearts for other people. This is our dirty little secret. Some of us might be bold enough to admit that, that we hate someone, but most of us, we don't think that we have real enemies, or if we do, they're totally justified. If you knew what they did to me, if you knew how bad they were, if you knew what happened, if, you, if, 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 justification. Some of us that have enemies, we've justified ourselves into hating people made in the image of God. This is our dirty little secret as Christians today. You see, the culture is going more polarized, and it's acceptable in our culture to have an enemy. If you're a Republican, then you have an enemy, and they're called the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, then you have an enemy, they're called the Republicans. And, and then in between that and outside of that, there's about 50 other ways that we've classified people. They're your enemy. You're against them. If you're for this, and you have to be against this. And if you love this, and you have to hate this. And, and all of a sudden, what's happened in our polarized culture is that we have stopped relating to other people as image bearers of the Most High God, or as people bought with the precious blood of Jesus, or people that he loves and he wants to forgive give and pities and we now treat people as enemies the polarization of our culture has made this acceptable in the eyes of christians but it's not do you have enemies maybe you're struggling to kind of connect this so let me just show you some pictures that might help you wrestle with this a little bit here's the first one this is ISIS beheading 21 Christians for no other reason than they were Christians. When you look at those people wearing what they're wearing, about to do what they're about to do, do you have a guttural reaction? I do. And my guttural reaction, it's, it's not love. Here's another one. Now I get, we're a politically diverse church. This is weird for some of you. Some of you love this guy, you're like, yay! Others of you, you, you voted for him, or some of you, are, you're indifferent. But, but some of you in the room, this is your enemy. He represents everything that you can't stand about America. Maybe this one. Just a group of people kind of brings out a a response, or maybe this one. We could go on and on. We could do this all day, but my point is that there are real people and groups and places that we just don't love. How could we? How could we love that? And some of us, we might be able to get over the fact that God loves those people, but don't expect me to. I'm sure not going to do that. God can, but don't expect me to. When you start saying things like that, what you need to see, you are Jonah. You're just like him. Let's get a little more specific. We all have enemies, everybody. Let me give you a definition of an enemy that I wrote up that I think might help you process this. An enemy is a person or a group of people who have wronged you or wronged someone that you care about. An enemy is someone that you are repulsed by. An enemy is someone you struggle to be around. An enemy is someone that you gossip about. An enemy is someone that you have just written off 
An enemy is someone you think less of. An enemy is someone that when their name comes up in conversation, you roll your eyes. An enemy is someone you don't want to forgive. Who are your enemies? Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what culture tells you. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know what the word love means in Greek? It means to love. Love your enemies. Now, some of us, when we read that, we just go, nope, not gonna do it. I, I'm not going to do it. In your heart, maybe you never out loud you admit it, but in your heart, you say, no, I'm not gonna forgive them. I'm not gonna love them. Then you are Jonah. You don't really want to follow Jesus into the new way of life that he is inviting you to live inside of. You want to do life your way, but to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus towards enemy love, where it's not that we don't have enemies. We actually step in and we love them. This is what it is to be a Christian. And this is important, friends. This is so vital for mission today in our cultural moment. This is so vital because the world says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And what will not work is a group of people that have great theology that can articulate the gospel really clearly in really beautiful ways, but do not love their enemies. We cannot be a group of people that are like that. Otherwise, we will have nothing, nothing beautiful to offer our world to offer our world the life of Jesus is to offer our world not just good theology and good doctrine. It's not just articulating the truth of the gospel, but it's a a life that embodies what it is to be shaped and changed by grace. I, of all people, did not deserve grace. Who am I to say that you don't deserve it either? That's the whole point about grace is that nobody deserves grace. We have enemies. The invitation of this book is love your enemies. The question is being posed to you. Should you not pity the people that God pities? Here's the second thing. There are certain people that we struggle to love, but there are certain things that we love more than people. I was so, so wrecked by just reading Jonah's pity over a plant thinking about what are the things in my life that are the plant to me? Here today and gone tomorrow, they're insignificant. They're just gonna pass away. What are the things in my life that I'm emotionally attached to at the expense of being emotionally attached to the people in my life? What do you weep over? What do you get moved over? What do you, what do you get uh, agitated about? What causes emotions to start flaring? What do you get stressed about? Is it immortal image bearers of God or is it stuff See, to be a Christian in this cultural moment is to learn to actually not love the plant. It's to love the people. It's to love the people that God has put in our life. So where do we go from here? Man, this story, this is a story where we're being held up into a mirror, looking at our own image, realizing that Jonah is a funny character to laugh at until I start to realize that he is me. He is who I am. So this book, this whole book, is an invitation from God for us to again go to him and receive grace.